Thank you. Okay, we're going to read from the Bible together now uh, from Acts Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akuldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry 
which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Good evening, everybody. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you. Welcome to church tonight. Um, if you're new here, can I just direct you to these Connect cards? We have them out on the welcome desk out there. If you fill out one of these and give us your name and contact details, we'll get in touch, help you to figure out how to get plugged into WBC. Uh, the start of a new term is a great time to get involved, so I encourage you to go and grab one of those after uh, the service. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a think about uh, Acts chapter 1 together and dive into this new series. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you that we have the privilege and the freedom uh, to be here tonight with it open in our laps. And so, Lord, we pray that we would treat this as a privilege and that you, please, would open our hearts to your word, that we would receive it and believe it, love it and cherish it and live in light of it. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, where is Jesus? And what's he doing? Where is Jesus? And what's he doing? That's a, a question uh, that can be asked a couple of different ways. You can ask that question with kind of a childlike curiosity. Uh, it's a question that my kids have, in fact, asked me a few times. Where is Jesus, Dad? What's, what's he doing these days? Or I think you could ask it a different way as well, with a kind of heavy-hearted weariness, asking it in a way when you are searching for hope. Uh, if you are someone here tonight who is investigating the Christian faith, maybe that's a question you've asked before. Uh, maybe you've read the Bible and you've heard about people who met Jesus and got to test him and ask him questions and find out what he was all about. And you read that and you think, well, that's all well and good for them, but I can't really do that, can I? Where is Jesus for me? I can't get in touch with him. Maybe you just wish at this moment that Jesus would show himself to you. Or maybe you've asked that question if you've been going through a really tough time in your life lately. Uh, maybe right now for you, it just doesn't feel like Jesus is nearby. And so you might ask, well, where is God? Where is Jesus in this that I'm going through right now? What is he even doing in my life? Or maybe as you watch the news and you read the newspaper and you hear about yet another war, yet another disaster, yet another injustice, you think... Does Jesus even know what's going on in his world? Can he do anything about this? Does he not care? Where is Jesus? What is he doing? Or maybe you've asked this question as a Christian recently. Uh, maybe you've seen something in the world that has given you cause for concern. Uh, one of the interesting things that's happened in the last couple of weeks is that all of the census data from the 2021 census has started to trickle out. And there's been some really interesting observations that have been made about the religious attitudes of Australia. Uh, you might have seen this or read a news article about this. This is some statistics that show how many people in the last five years have changed their mind about the box on the census that tick, they tick for their religion. Since 2016, you can see that about 8% of Australians have no longer ticked that box that say they're Christians. That equates to a bit over 2 million people. 2 million people have said, no, actually, we're not Christians. And you can kind of see where those people have decided to go instead, into the no religion box. And maybe if you heard about that as a Christian, you felt a kind of a mild panic seeing numbers like that. And so maybe you ask, well, where is Jesus? 
in our country when this is going on? Why isn't Jesus doing something about that? That doesn't seem right. What's Jesus up to? Have you asked that question before? I think it's a pretty common question to ask because it's true that as you look around at our world, perhaps as you, you look down at your own life, it usually doesn't appear at first glance like Jesus is around and that he's actually doing anything. I want to say it's a really important question to wrestle with because if you understand where Jesus is and what he's doing today, what that does is it helps you to locate yourself and to understand the circumstances that you find yourself in. Uh, if we can answer this question, it's a bit like calibrating the GPS or the compass on your phone. It will help you to find your way better, no matter what you are facing. Find your way forward. Now, as we dive into the book of Acts this term, we're going to be studying the first eight chapters. And right out of the gates, Luke, the author of Acts, here in chapter one, he wants to answer that question for us. He wants us to be really crystal clear about where Jesus is and what he's doing. And so what we're going to see tonight as we jump into Acts chapter one are three truths about where Jesus is and what he's doing. Three truths. Truth number one, Jesus is alive. Truth number one, Jesus is alive. Uh, some of my favourite films ever are the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, I know I'm outing myself here as enough of a nerd to like Lord of the Rings, but not enough of a nerd to cherish the books over the movies. So that puts me in a bit of a pigeonhole. Uh, I have seen, I saw each of those films when they were at the cinema a minimum of four times in the cinema. And then I've actually lost count of how many times I've watched them on DVD after that. Uh, I love The Lord of the Rings. I love particularly the extended edition Lord of the Rings. Before we had kids, we used to watch the extended edition Lord of the Rings pretty regularly. And it was a slog. It's not for the faint of heart because it's at least 12 hours in a row if you, if you go for all three films. Uh, and one of the things that happens as, as you watch all three of those films kind of back to back to back is that you realise it's not actually three films, Right? It's actually one extended, really long, epic 12-hour film that they actually just had to chop up into three parts so that anybody could go to the cinema and watch it. Uh, and I, I think that was true, actually, from the beginning. Uh, when J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, he actually wrote it as one big story. He didn't write the first book, Fellowship of the Ring, and kind of it become this huge commercial, commercial success. And he thought, sweet, I can cash in on this. I'll just make a few sequels, you know, like Disney do when they have a success. Now he didn't do that. Right away from the beginning, he wrote it as one big story, just for practical reasons, had to be chopped up into two, into three rather, for people to digest it. And the same is kind of true about the book of Acts when we come to it, because Acts is the second book written by the author Luke in the New Testament. And, and some people have this misconception about the book of Acts. Maybe if you've read it before, you've thought that Acts is like this general history about what happened after the four Gospels. You know, it's the history of the early church or something like that. But that's not actually true. What Acts is, is the second part in Luke's continuous story about what God has done and what he is going to keep doing in the world. It's just been broken up into two scrolls, if you like. And you can kind of tell that from the very first verses of this chapter, can't you? They, these first verses are kind of like the glue that connects these two books of Luke and Acts together. Because if you can remember back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, he addresses his gospel to someone that he calls most excellent Theophilus. 
Theophilus was probably the patron who was paying for Luke to write this history, this gospel story. Uh, And here again, in the beginning of Acts, he addresses it to the same guy. So let's read from verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, I wonder, as you read that, did anything kind of jump out at you? Anything seem a little bit out of place in that verse? I think that the word began seems a little bit out of place, doesn't it? Because it seems like what Luke is saying is that in his first book, in Luke's gospel, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And by implication, I think he's saying that in this second book, he's writing about all that Jesus continued to do and teach. The book of Acts is the story about how Jesus continued doing and teaching what he had been doing in Luke. Even though Jesus goes up to heaven in this very chapter, he doesn't leave the story. Now, it's kind of one of the unfortunate um, quirks of history that from about 100 years after Jesus was on earth, uh, this book became known as the Acts of the Apostles. The early church just kind of named it that. Uh, In kind of more recent times, people have been wanting to rename this book to the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit has a big role to play in this book. But actually, I think there's a better alternative, that if we want to follow Luke's lead, then we should understand that this book is the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. It's almost why we named our sermon title uh, that, isn't it? Luke wants to emphasise for us right from the get-go that Jesus is the one who's in this story. This Jesus who was crucified and rose again in his first volume, well, he's still going. He's still active and he's still alive. So have a read from verse 3. Luke says, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You see, the first thing that Jesus does after he rises from the dead is to prove to his followers that he's still alive. He wants them to be crystal clear about it. And so Luke says that, well, Jesus gave many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. And in fact, Luke recorded some of those proofs for us. The the New Testament has a number of times where it describes Jesus proving that he really had physically risen from the dead. Luke himself records a few of them. And so we're going to take a flick back to Luke chapter 24 and have a little read of some of what Luke says these convincing proofs were. So let's read from Luke. Luke 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still didn't believe him because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. You see, here are some of the convincing proofs that Jesus gives to his followers. He stands amongst them and he shows them that this is not a hallucination. He's not a ghost. He's real flesh and blood. He he takes the fish and he eats it to prove this to them, touching the wounds on his hands and his feet. And it it should go without saying that this is a remarkable claim to be making, isn't it? This has got to be the biggest claim in history. 
that, that someone has passed through death. Who else can say that? This has got to be the biggest claim ever made because if this is true, this means that death is not the end for us. That's not what we ought to fear at the end of our life. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it means that this life that we live, these 80 or whatever years, that this is not all that there is. If Jesus rose from the dead, then that means there must be a power that is higher even than life and death. This is an enormous claim for Jesus to be making. Now, from time to time, you do hear those kind of stories of people claiming that they saw some celebrity who's been long dead. I think probably the most famous uh, culprit here is Elvis Presley. There have been stories for decades about people citing Elvis, having little run-ins with him, or he's old and crusty and working at a you know, petrol station or a restaurant or something like that. You can read all sorts of accounts about people claiming that somebody didn't really die. But the problem with these kind of stories is that they're never verifiable, are they? You, you can never go and find the person that they claim that they saw. They're long gone by that point. And usually in these stories, it's only ever one person at a time who claims to have seen them or interacted with them. But do you see the difference then with what's going on with Jesus here? The Bible offers far, far more credible and verifiable and falsifiable evidence for Jesus being alive. And it's no exaggeration, friends, to say that Christianity stands or falls on the historical claim that Jesus Christ really rose from the grave. It stands or falls on it. Because if this is a lie, if Jesus is still in the grave, then let me tell you as a pastor, there's no reason for you to be a Christian. If this is all just kind of metaphorical or symbolic or something like that, just give up now. You can leave. This would not be worth paying attention to. But if this is true, then it changes everything, doesn't it? I'll say if you're here tonight and you're someone who's not fully convinced about that, you're still kind of wrestling with the idea of whether someone could actually go through death well, then I'd like to invite you to come along to the Christianity Explored course this term. That would be a great place for you to ask some of these questions and work through what the Bible says about the death and resurrection of Jesus and think about what the implications of that might be for your life. But I do want to warn you, uh, as somebody who once was on the sceptical side of the fence, if you start looking into the evidence for the resurrection, there's a good chance that you'll be convinced that it happened. <laughs> Speaking from experience, the evidence is overwhelming. Luke wants us to know with certainty that Jesus really is alive as we start this book of Acts. That's the first truth he's got for us. The second truth for us today is that this Jesus who is alive, he has a mission. Jesus has a mission. Really the first thing on Jesus' agenda once he meets with his disciples here is to tell them not to do anything, which is a bit funny. He says, just sit, stay put, don't leave Jerusalem, just hang around because, as he says there in verses 3 and 4, he's going to send the promised Holy Spirit that his Father has promised them. Uh, you see, whatever Jesus' ongoing plans are, now that he's alive and active in the world, what's well, going to revolve around his followers being given the Holy Spirit. And the disciples, you can see their response there in, in verse, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 6. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and maybe if you've read through this passage this week, you thought, well, that's a bit of a strange question, isn't it? 
I mean, if Jesus has just promised them that they're going to get the Holy Spirit, that's probably not the first question off the top of my mind. I mean, I want to know what that's going to be like. When can I expect to experience that Jesus? What's going to be the evidence of that? What am I going to be able to do with the Holy Spirit that I can't do now? All those sort of things. But the apostles ask Jesus, well, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Why is that? Why do they ask that question? Well, the answer is because they know their Old Testaments better than we do. <laughs> you see, they knew, well, at this point in history, Israel were really under the thumb of the Romans, as they had been under the thumb of empire after empire for the last six or so centuries. Israel was a punching bag at this point. But the apostles knew that God had promised long ago that that wasn't always going to be the case. Uh, they knew that God was going to send a king into the world, a king who was going to liberate Israel and bring peace. Now, we saw some of that as we studied the book of Zechariah last term. You might remember some of those prophecies about the branch, the root that's going to be sent into the world. Uh, lots of prophecies in the Old Testament talk about this great king who is going to come and he's going to gather God's people back again from the four corners of the earth. This king who's going to come from the line of David, this king who would, importantly, have the Holy Spirit. So I want to take you to one passage that kind of ties all of these expectations about this great king together. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 11. This is where we find all of these themes kind of converging. Uh, so let's have a read from verse 1. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Sounds very like Zechariah, doesn't it? The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. You see, to the people here in Isaiah who were a punching bag, God says that's not always going to be the case. I'm going to send a king and he's going to be a, a king who has the spirit upon him. He's going to be a spirit-filled king. And look what that means from verse 3. It means that he's going to be just. It says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. He will judge with, sorry, with righteousness. He will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteous will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. This king is going to rule well. He's not going to oppress his people. He's going to liberate them. He's going to make things right. And then he goes on from verse 6 to describe the kind of peace this king is going to bring. Have a listen to this. Verse 6, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covered the sea. An incredible picture of peace that this king is going to bring. It sounds, doesn't it, like the Garden of Eden, all of nature set right and in harmony again. God was promising one day in, in passages like this, he's going to send this spirit-filled king, this one who comes from David's line, this one who would liberate the people of Israel, this one who would bring peace. And then along comes Jesus from David's line, doing miracles, rising from the dead. And so, of course, his disciples, as they're connecting the dots, they ask the question, 
Jesus, does this mean that this is the time this is going to happen? Isaiah 11, is now the time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? The issue was that the apostles actually didn't know the Old Testament as well as they thought they did. That's why they asked their question that particular way. Jesus knows what this king is going to come and do in its entirety. He knows that the reign of this spirit-filled king is going to be global for the whole world, not just for the people of Israel. Have a look what he says there in verse 10. In that day, Isaiah 11 verse 10, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This spirit-filled king, he's not just going to come to earth to, to rule and redeem and restore Israel. No, he's going to rule the whole world. All the nations are going to flock to him. And that is Jesus's mission in the book of Acts. So take note of how Jesus replies to this question. Verses 7 and 8 of Acts 1, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Guys, you're on the wrong track. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, this, this spirit-filled king, he is going to be a banner for the nations. They are going to flock to him. His kingdom is going to extend to the very ends of the earth and he's going to do it without ever drawing a sword without ever mustering his armies and sending them to invade a foreign nation. No, Jesus is going to send his followers filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, carrying the message of a crucified saviour who forgives sins. And as they go to the nations and speak, the Lord Jesus is going to conquer. He's going to conquer human hearts. People are going to repent and turn to him and serve him and love him. That is Jesus' great plan. <laughs> his followers, empowered by the Spirit, sharing the good news with other people who become followers, who share the good news with other people, who become followers, who share the good news with other people, and snowballing on and on and on to the very ends of the earth. That is a remarkable mission, isn't it? i tell you what I think is even more remarkable than that is that as you read through the book of Acts, that's exactly what happens. The story starts in Jerusalem and Jewish people are converted. They hear the message about Jesus and they believe in him. They become Christians. And then by the time you get to chapter 8, the Jewish people are scattered. The Christians are scattered into Judea and Samaria. And then as the story goes on, you start to see people heading out a little bit further north, a little bit further west into Syria and Turkey. And then later in the book, you reach Europe in places like Greece and Malta and Italy, where yet more people are hearing the message being preached by the power of the Holy Spirit, believing it, becoming Christians, starting churches. It's exactly as Jesus said it would be. But as Jesus said these words and laid out his, his grand mission plan for the earth to his disciples that day, if you were a fly on the wall, I think you could be forgiven for just not believing that that was going to come true, right? That The people Jesus was speaking to, they didn't stand a chance. I mean, these guys were hardly world beaters, were they? Uh, the, the gospel writers, Luke himself even, goes out of his way to show and to highlight just how inept the disciples were. They were constantly missing the point of what Jesus said. They were constantly doubting him, constantly getting it wrong. 
These were the guys who, who Jesus pinned his kingdom on. And on top of that, Luke told us later in the chapter, there's only about 120 Christians on the planet at this time. This is Jesus' strategy for taking his gospel to the ends of the earth? Yeah, it's exactly what it is. Do you see what the lesson is here for us, friends? That it does not matter as we look out at the mission that we have as God's people. It doesn't matter how daunting the task may seem. It doesn't matter how unimpressive and ill-equipped we may feel about that task. Because God uses unimpressive, unlikely people like you and I to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. So no matter how young or how old you are, uh, no matter whether you feel especially clever or funny, uh, it doesn't. you don't have to be someone who knows all of the answers, someone who never feels scared talking about Jesus. Because the truth is that when you believe in Jesus and you are given the Holy Spirit, you have got everything you need. You have got Jesus' own power sufficient to share what you know about your king, to be a witness for Jesus. So just like the disciples, we can participate in this mission with confidence because, thirdly, third truth that Luke's got for us, Jesus is the one in charge. Jesus is in charge. It's the last thing Luke wants to show us tonight. Uh, in verse 9, Luke zooms in. He focuses on Jesus ascending into heaven, taken up into a cloud before their very eyes, which, again, at first glance, sure seems like Jesus is leaving the story here, isn't he? He's sort of the character being written out. But in fact, the rest of the New Testament does give us a little bit more of a, a glimpse into where Jesus is going and what he's going to do there. The rest of the New Testament tells us that having ascended into heaven, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. That's one of those teachings that's actually spread all throughout the New Testament, and you could easily miss it if you don't pay attention to it. But I'll give you one example of Jesus himself explaining that that's what he's going to go to heaven and do. Uh, this is when Jesus is testifying uh, before Pilate in Luke 22. And Jesus says to him, From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. That's where Jesus went that day as he ascended. Uh, this is what uh, theologians call uh, Christ's session. This is the session of Christ. In Latin, the word session just means seating. And so this, this does seem a little bit strange, doesn't it? Jesus leaves earth where he could be of great use in helping the disciples in their mission, and he goes to heaven and takes a seat. What is that about? Maybe as we try and make sense of that, in your mind, you think, well, it sounds like Jesus is having a rest. I mean, that's what, we, that's what sitting is for us, isn't it? When you had a hard day and you want to take a load off, grab a seat. You know, when you want to have a nice quiet night in, you sprawl on the couch with a bowl of chips and you binge on Netflix. Seating equals resting, right? And Lord knows, I mean, if anybody deserved to sit down and have a rest, it was Jesus. I mean, think about what he went through in his time here on earth. He, he suffered on the cross. He died for our sins. He conquered Satan, sin, and death. He rose to life. He did 40 days of resurrection appearances. Then he ascends into heaven. I mean, you might think, well, Jesus kind of deserves to have a little rest, doesn't he? Make him a nice cold drink and have a sit down. But that's not what the Bible means when it says that Jesus takes a seat in heaven. That Sitting never means resting in the Bible, actually. Sitting is what a king does when he takes his throne. 
to exercise his rule and his authority over his people. Or sitting is what a judge does, actually, uh, when he's preparing to pass a judgment. In fact, that one's actually been preserved in the English language, hasn't it? When we're talking about courtrooms and judges and stuff, when the judge is sitting down, ready to make a judgment, we say that the court is in session, right? So when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't sit down to rest. He sat down to begin his session. He sat down to get on with the business of ruling the universe. Jesus is not lazing back today, just watching the world turn. No, Jesus is actively ruling everything and everyone. And and actually you see Jesus doing that from this very moment in the book of Acts, straight after he ascends back to heaven. I don't know when Beth was reading uh, the passage earlier, whether you thought it was a bit peculiar that right after Jesus goes back up to heaven, the next thing that Luke tells us about is the apostles choosing someone to replace Judas after he'd gone and committed suicide. We read about it there from the second half of of chapter 1. Peter basically says, we need another apostle, we're a man down, and so we need to pick a replacement. And so Luke records what they did to pick a replacement. But have a look at how Luke says this happened from verse 24. He says, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. See, it's, it's Judas who chooses Matthias to replace Judas because Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the one who's on heaven's throne calling the shots, right? In fact, in the rest of the book of Acts, we are going to see Jesus himself at work sending people and preaching and healing and growing the kingdom. Luke says it was Jesus who did all these things. Jesus is the one at work, which means ultimately the success of Jesus' mission doesn't rest on his disciples. <laughs> and isn't that good news for us? It doesn't rest on us. Uh, the book of Acts is Jesus' story. And I hope you know that the story that the book of Acts begins, it hasn't actually ended yet. As you read through the book of Acts and you get to chapter 28, you, you notice that the book kind of ends really abruptly. Luke doesn't kind of tie a bow on things and give it a neat, happy ending. You know, the mission was fulfilled and they all lived happily ever after. It doesn't happen that way. It just kind of stops. It's almost like you're reading your way through and you've read The Fellowship of the Ring and you've read The Two Towers and now you're just waiting for the return of the king. And I reckon Luke does that deliberately. He he stops the story where he does to invite us in, his readers, to see how we fit into this ongoing story of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, how we play our part in seeing this gospel go to the ends of the earth. I reckon, friends, for many of us, uh, we are in a very similar position to Jesus' disciples in verse 10. They've just watched him go up into heaven and they're just standing there just looking, you know, dumbfounded. You can imagine a bit of drool kind of coming out of their mouths. They don't know what to do. And some angels appear to them and they say, why are you standing there? And you can kind of, you can hear the exasperation in the angels' voices, right? Don't just stand there, guys. Get on with it. Haven't you understood? <laughs> Jesus is alive. He's given you his mission. 
He is ruling over the whole universe. What are you waiting for? Get involved. Start telling people. It's pretty easy, isn't it, to just find ourselves standing around rather than getting involved in the mission of our king? Maybe tonight we need to be reminded that Jesus is still conquering human hearts one at a time by the power of his gospel as his followers share about him. When we feel just lost or aimless, maybe we need to remember that Jesus is still alive. When we find ourselves in the minority and an increasing minority, maybe we need to believe that Jesus' mission is still ongoing. When we don't know why things are the way that they are in our lives, maybe we need to trust that Jesus really is still in charge, still sitting on heaven's throne, even when we can't see it. When we know where Jesus is and what he's doing, it helps us to know where we are in this grand story and to understand what we've got to do today to play our part. Because we know how this story ends, don't we? It doesn't end in Acts chapter 28. It ends in Revelation 22, when every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus. We know the end of the story, but until then, as we wait for the return of the King, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ says that you and I have still got a part to play in this story. So what are you standing around for? Let me pray. Mighty Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who has conquered sin and death and the devil. Thank you that you've invited us into eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, a relationship with you. Thank you for the wonderful hope that that gives us. And Jesus, please would you help us when we doubt and when we feel apathetic and when we're confused and we don't see where you are and what you're doing in this life. Help us to remember that you really are as alive today as you were on that day with your followers. Help us to remember that your mission really is continuing to tick over and you are conquering human hearts. And help us to trust that you are the one who sits on heaven's throne, orchestrating it all. Thank you, Jesus, for calling us to play a small part in your mission. Would you help us to pick up our feet and to get moving? Amen.